3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boon people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners and custodians of this land upon which we live and work. We pay respect to Elders past and present and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who may be in our audience or listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement and that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. And good morning, Wednesday Breakfast listeners. Good morning, everyone. Um, how are you guys doing? We're all well this morning, I think. Yeah. Everyone's smiling. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. that might, might be that extra hour of sleep with the daylight saving change. Oh, oh definitely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we really need that. I think it was such a good time to like give us an extra, extra break, even though it's just one hour. Yeah. Mm. Although I have to say uh, on that on that night, um, since I'm, uh, well, my uh, on that night of daylight savings, I actually got woken up an hour early because um, my grandma <laughs> freaked out and thought that um, we were late for suhoor, which was our date, <sighs> like our meal before we fast at dawn. So um, I got woken up at like three thirty a.m. It's meant to be four, is that? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> So yeah, that was fun. How was the feast? Um, we don't really like feast drinks. We just have like a normal meal, whatever. And um, I guess uh, if dar is the meal uh, we have uh, when we break our when we end our fast, so that's a meal we have, and that differs from um, you know what that can look like differs from household to household and culture to culture. It's really interesting what um, different cultures eat. For iftar, like we in our household and our culture, we have like some staples um, that we eat only during Ramadan for some reason. But they're so good. I don't know why we don't eat them all year round. So, yeah. What are the staples? Um, one, I don't know the name. Um, one's like this, I don't know if it's a lentil or a type of chickpea. I think it's something in between, but we uh, we cook that. And um, with like, you know, spices, onions and potatoes, it's really nice and filling. Yeah. So a Ramadan's like the only time I, I ha- pretty much have that. And there's also this other staple that we have. We sometimes have it, but we only have it during Ramadan. And that's called halim, which is like um, a stew made with like lentils and beef or lamb or some kind of meat. Yeah. Sounds delicious. Yeah, it is. Um, so what have you guys been doing? Uh, how was your break, Claudia? Uh, break was good last week and got away on the weekend down to Ocean Grove. I live very close to the Grand Prix track, um, so it's a bit of a tradition to try and get away from the noise, uh, although it wasn't as bad this year. Uh, I think some of the engines were a bit different and yeah, the noise wasn't quite as screechy. 
and yeah that was really nice to get some fresh air did some lovely walks with my dog on the beach mm. along the Bowen River um yeah so always mm. refreshing to have a little break yeah every time I've been to Ocean Grove I've always been to this one fish and chip shop and I think it's the best one in uh like the, the, in the, in the, on the area, street? Yeah, yeah, I have fish and chips, so maybe we're at the same place. Mm. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> so, what is on for the show this morning? Oh. So, Nara, I think you'll um, first cab off yeah. the rank. Well, first off, uh, we're going to hear from uh, a segment from Earth Matters, and um, that's going to be Sue McKinnon from King Lake Friends of, of the Forest. Um, talking to Idwin Jeffries from Earth Matters about um, the Vic Forests, which is a state logging company, and their logging methods, which, um, fail, like, which fail to protect threatened species of gliders, and basically an update on, um, you know, I guess, citizen science efforts to ensure Victoria's forests stay protected. Yeah, mm, that's interesting. Very important. Yep. And then I'll be speaking to Mananjali and South Sea Islander women, Chelsea Wego, Professor of Indigenous Health and Executive Director of Karma Institute at Queensland University of Technology, about the Senate inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women. Hmm. Very important yeah, investigation. Definitely. Then around 10 to 8, we're going to be talking about vulnerability, why it is important to accept our vulnerability and what is the best way to respond to vulnerability. So we'll be hearing from Marina McCoy, who is Professor of Philosophy at Boston College, Massachusetts. And I think, um, yeah, that'll be a really uh, timely conversation and so many of our conversations that we have at 3CR really touch on uh, compassion and what it means to be to be vulnerable both to help others and also to acknowledge that we all experience um, you know hurt and suffering at some point and we need to accept support so yeah that'll be uh, coming up around 10 to 8 and after that we'll be having a chat with Professor Sandra Tom Jones who is the author of the book Growing Into Autism. And that will be the first of a series of interviews we'll be presenting this month. Um, April is Autism Awareness Month. So at 10 past eight each Wednesday for April, we'll be speaking with an, a number of autistic people about their experiences in uh, their work, uh, education, life, and yeah, just having a chat about um, different aspects of their experience and their perspectives. And in a moment, we'll be heading into a new addition to the program. Uh, we're going to be delivering news headlines uh, at the beginning of our show each week. So stick around for that in a moment. Yep, we'll just be back after a couple of announcements.
Have you had your fourth COVID-19 vaccine dose? The Murdoch Children's Research Institute at the Royal Children's Hospital are recruiting participants aged 18 years or older to receive a randomized fourth COVID-19 vaccine dose, either Moderna bivalent or Novavax vaccine, or be part of a control group and receive no additional vaccine. You will be compensated for your time and transport and will receive your antibody test results. For more information, contact covid.booster at mcri.edu.au. The Murdoch Children's Research Institute is a 3CR supporter. Would you like to reduce your risk of dementia? The Better Brains trial aims to discover whether targeted lifestyle changes can prevent memory decline in Australian adults. Participants aged 40 to 70 with a family history of dementia are allocated to receive health coaching from an allied health professional or health education materials about dementia and its risk factors. The trial is run entirely online, so visit www.betterbrains.org.au to sign up now. Better Brains is a 3CR supporter. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast with Sonara, Grace and Claudia. And from today, we'll be introducing a new segment in the program, sharing major headlines of the day. And we're also going to be joined by Patrick Morrow, who is going to kick off the headlines for us this morning. Thanks, Claudia. Uh, starting off your Wednesday, major news out of the USA. Former President Donald Trump has pleaded not guilty to 34 charges of falsifying <laughs> business records in the first degree after facing New York City's arrangement court with a photo and fingerprinted conducted as days after a Manhattan grand jury indicted the former president for his role in paying hush money to an adult film star. Mr Trump will be holding a press conference at his Margo Lago, Florida state uh, later on today with Manhattan's District Attorney Alvin Brand releasing a statement just a short time ago stating, The people of the state of New York allege that Donald J. Trump repeatedly and fraudulently falsified New York business records to conceal crimes that hid damaging information from the voting public during the 2016 presidential election, Bragg says. Manhattan is home to the country's most significant business market. We cannot allow New York businesses to manipulate their records to cover up criminal conduct. As the statement of facts describe, the trial of money, trail of money, uh, of money and lies exposes a pattern that the people allege and violates one of New York's basic and fundamental business laws. As this office has done time and time again, we are today uphold our solemn responsibility to ensure that everyone stands equal before the law. Now I'll pass over to you, Sonera, for a more local story. Um, thank you, Patrick, for that. Good to have you here today, finally. And yes, now on to something a bit more local. Um, the owners of the Last Chance Rock and Roll Bar are on a mission to save the Turked, but they only have one day left to turn in an offer to buy it. It was announced last month that renowned Melbourne music venue, The Tote, has been put up for sale. Joe Perring, the owner of The Tote, revealed that it was being sold for up to $6.6 million, likely to be purchased by a developer. However, 
Hole in the Wall Bar and music venue Last Chance Rock and Roll Bar won't let that happen. The owners of Last Chance, Shane Hilton and Leanne Chance, have donated half the funds themselves and are campaigning to raise the remaining $3 million to save the tote forever. And tomorrow, they are putting, up, uh, they are putting in an offer to bid for it. So far, the amount raised um, through the crowd, crowdfunding campaign has just hit a million dollars last night. If you want to contribute, you can head to their possible campaign, which we will link to in our show notes late, later on. If Hilton and Chance are, are unable to meet their goal before May, all of the donations will be returned. Now, over to Grace. Thanks, Sonera. Um we are deeply saddened by the loss of Indigenous leader, Dr. Yunun Pingu, also a Yongo leader and a strong voice for Aboriginal people. He was former Australian of the Year, Gama Festival chairman, and a great Indigenous activist who fought for land rights. Yunun Pingu passed away in Ironham land at age 74. On another note, union members of Australian Union are calling on the Fair Work Commission also known as FWC, to increase the pay rate by 7% this year. With the Fairwork Commission setting of the new minimum wages and award wages to come effect, come into effect this July 1st, just like it happens every year, they are calling upon this increase as the cost of living crisis continues to worsen because, uh, quote, working people need a lifeline, Australian Union said. The pay rate was successfully increased to 5.2% last year. Now, head over to Claudia. Thanks, Grace. And on the subject of pay rises, our women's cricket has had a bit of a win this last week when Cricket Australia announced an additional payment pool of $133 million over five years for Australian professional women cricketers. This represents an increase of 66% in payments to women cricketers, up from $80 million under the previous agreement. And according to independent women's media hub, Women's Agenda, women's cricketers uh, with state and women's big bash league deals will now receive an average pay package of $151,000. This increase means cricket is set to become the first major Australian sport to achieve pay parity at a domestic level, although important to note that the numbers still leave a gap in women's cricket state contracts where the rates are 70% of male players. And that's the news headlines for Wednesday the 5th of April. And now we're going to go to our first segment, but before that we'll have a, a couple of community service announcements. Melbourne Jazz Jammers present the third Newport Jazz Festival. 50 bands, multiple venues and three days of great music from some of Melbourne's finest musicians, the 21st to the 23rd of April. Trad, swing, blues, big band, Latin, bossa, bebop and beyond. Get your tickets at the Newport Bowls Club box office, Market Street, Newport or online at melbournejazzjammers.com.au. Let's get the party started at the friendliest festival in the West, Newport Jazz Festival, a 3CR supporter. 
Hello, welcome back to Wednesday Breakfast and now we're going to go into another segment. Um, so now we'll hear from Sue McKinnon from King Lake Friends of the Forest. Sue was on Earth Matters last month where she updated Eidwin on state logging company Vic Forests and their logging methods which failed to protect th threatened species of gliders. Vic forests were brought to court by conservation groups King Lake Friends of the Forest and Environmental East Gippsland, who won the case last year. However, more needs to be done to make sure that the Victorian government is phasing out logging. Here's Sue McKinnon talking to Eidwin about citizen science efforts to ensure Victoria's forests stay protected. Your team had huge success in November in the joint court case with um, East Environment Gippsland, Victoria's Supreme Court found that the agency Vic Forests had failed to adequately survey for endangered greater glider possums before logging with its timber harvesting operations in the East Gippsland and the Central Highlands with the threat of serious or irreversible harm to the gliders. Can you tell us a little bit about the judgment and the success in November? Um, well, the main thing is that we won. Um, we won all the clauses that we argued, both K King Lake Friends of Forest and Environment East Kitsland won all the clauses they argued for. Um, the judgment was really clear. Um, Victoria has been in in our case, Victoria has been in breach of two clauses. One clause basically says they must survey for endangered species, um, and they weren't. And the other saying they must avoid threatening serious or irreversible harm to the environment. Um, and in this case, we showed that the threat was um, that of extinction of two species. Um, so the greater glider and the yellow-bellied glider were um, being threatened. And um, it was up to the forest to prove they weren't. They weren't able to prove they weren't being threatened. And so, um, yeah, so the judgment was quite clear about that. Um, they haven't, they've failed to abide by their own logging laws. Um, and that's over the entire of the Central Highlands and East Gippsland, not just specific um, instances. Mm. Um, so the logging's been illegal and the wood produced from that logging is illegally logged wood. We had the Friends of the Leadbeater case and then in 2022, the Victorian government announced that it was publishing amendments to the Forestry Codes of Practice in Victoria and also the Conservation Forest and Land Act, which is what you're referencing in that response here. Um, th these changes went through very fast. There was a little consultation period and there were significant changes it's now that those changes have actually been formalised, they were published in June of last year, I believe, at least the changes to the forestry codes of practice. I, I was wondering how that sort of, um, what the impact's been like on forest regulation, if it has gotten in the way of your community court cases. It's sounding like it's a no. Well, there was actually two changes to the code. Mm -hmm. The first one was in 2021, and um, that came through just, just days before our other case, we we took the clause to court because they were not we said where they were not abiding by the clause relating to screening yep. their logging from view, and um, just it, our case was delayed and delayed, and just days before our case went to trial, um, the code was changed and they removed the um, screening from view, and that just completely derailed our case. Mm. 
Um, since then, they had a second change in the code, and that, um, and that's when they brought in the precautionary principle change. And uh, yeah, we just tweaked our, we just changed our evidence, or added more evidence to our trial, and it didn't change much. The, the that second change was quite significant um, in that they also changed the the act that sits above the code, and. Um, and the changes in the act mean that future code changes don't need any consultation. Wow. Um, yes. And forest protectors can be jailed. Um, it expands the power of the uh, police in the forest. Um, Vic police will now be able to ban people from the forest. Wow. Um, the new laws seem to be aimed at citizen scientists. Um, it means that climbing a tree to install, say, a, a wildlife camera to look for an endangered species and that's quite often done now for, for say, for lead feeder possums, um, can result in jail time for the surveyor. Um, it also can result in, in being banned from the forest by the police. So um, this, the changes to the Act were dramatic, way above what, um, you know, I don't know. I, I know that um, we've obviously had a lot of protest laws um, being brought in by the Victorian government in the last couple of years, which could threaten that, but I didn't know it was to these sort of extents. It's really interesting to hear oh. the attack on citizen scientists, which, of course, oh. you guys are doing a lot of. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we, we base our cases would be nothing without citizen science. Um, mm. and, 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 and in fact, right now, because of our case and because of the orders that came in, so the Supreme Court has placed orders on Big Frost, they must survey, and where gliders are found, they must protect them. They also must protect um, other things like waterways and, and hollow and trees. Um, so it's up to us now to do a lot of monitoring. We, of course, don't trust big forest. So we will be out surveying um, like crazy. And, um, and, and you know, <laughs> acts like that um, are quite significant when, when you, you know, when you realise how important monitoring in the forest is. Of course, when you're doing that day-to-day legwork oh. that goes into the court case. So we've had uh, Dr. Jennifer Sanger come on to the show, earlier on the show, talking about the lack of transparency in emissions reporting from statewide logging entities in New South Wales, Tasmania and Victoria. As an activist that has been engaging with the forestry industry, either in the courtroom or on the forest floor, what is your perspective of what aspects of the logging public-private relationship um, that need more transparency that remain really opaque? Well, I agree with with Jen that um, um, that emissions need to be declared um, and and not just lumped in the forest um, absorbs a lot of carbon and. The reduction, the emissions from, from logging is lost in amongst the, um, the, the absorption of carbon. Um, so, so that's one thing. Um, I guess in regards to transparency, I would like to see more transparency in where the logs from Victor's logging are going to. So... If you go to the website of, um, say, Australian Sustainable Hardwood, um, you have to search and search and search um, and, and go through a, very, a number of um, um, pages and links before you realise, oh, this was 
wood from Big Frost logging. This is wood from our native forest. Um, and the same with other mills um, and the same with, with Nippon making paper and making cardboard mm-hmm. out of our native forest. Um, it, it's not immediately apparent. It seems to be hidden. Um, and it's also hidden behind the word sustainable. Um, and and no, none of these sites seem to um, admit that not only has it been found to be this, this wood that they're using to make their product has been found to have been illegally logged, um, but they also have the word sustainable printed hundreds of times on the website. And, you know, we've proven that because they're failing the precautionary principle, they're basically failing the very fundamental of sustainable development at, at, that Australia agreed to. So yeah, I find I find that these um, the the man, the, um, the suppliers, the resellers of wood, you know, of, of trees of our forest, um, it, it's just very opaque to say the least. Yeah, yep, it's greenwashing and opaque. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, with that in mind, um, one of the big PR announcements that we've got from the Victorian government on this issue, I should say, PR slash policy. Serious hard policy is that the government is going to phase out native uh, logging by 2030, and that's kicking off in 2024. Uh, Now, that announcement was a couple of years ago, and we find ourselves closer and closer to 2024. I was wondering, as sort of someone engaged in this space, have we seen any movements around that or any action plan or or sort of step-by-step process underway? Oh, there's nothing transparent about it. There's nothing... um that has been that we've seen that's been um, a reduction in, in any contract. So there's a contract to the Maryvale Mill um, between the government and the mill mm-hmm. uh, to supply wood for paper and cardboard, um, and that hasn't been officially changed. And it's oh, we just don't know what's happening with that contract because over the last certainly since our case came when our case decision was handed down in November last year, all logging in the east of the state, which is you know, 99% of the wood going mm-hmm. to uh, Maribel, um, has been stopped. So because the court said you have to survey and Big Frost were in no position to do surveys, so they completely stopped all logging in the east of the state. Unfortunately, they have started logging in, in Wombat, Forest and Orkney right. Standing on National Park and Sylvan Reservoir. Um, so that's really sad, but the volume must be significantly reduced. This is their peak season summer, and they haven't logged over the whole summer wow. in, in, in the east. So um, there's been a lot less volume going to to uh, the Nippon Inc. Um, paper mill in Maryvale, and a lot less volume going to those store logs uh, that take a small portion of native forest logging. Um, probably a lot, a lot less volume going to the manufacture of ships, pellets. Um, but we've seen nothing official. There's nothing intentional about it. It's just like, oh, well, we can't because of the court. Gotcha. Yeah. It, it, well, although I don't know that the decision by Nippon to stop making white paper was entirely because of 
supply problems. They may have been looking for an excuse to get out. I don't know. Well, yes, this does bring us to 2023, and we've the logging industry has had a few knockbacks in Victoria. News headlines last year about the losses, uh, unprecedented losses made by the sector, and then yeah, there's sort of the speculation early Feb around Nippon closing. Um, but I wanted to ask. In terms of King Lake Friends of the Forest and your focus, what's 2023 got in stall or where's, where's the focus at? Oh, surveying and surveying and surveying, just monitoring right. these forests, making sure we know where every glider is, every waterway, every hollow-bearing tree, a yellow-bellied feed trees, all those things are protected now in the, in the new the permanent injunction set by the, the court. Um, and so we just, we need, we need so many surveys. <laughs> um, and, and, but, I mean, I must say it's a, a fun thing to do, so uh, I'm, I'm enjoying it. But, um, <laughs> but yeah. yeah. And, and, and the good thing is is that um, unlike before when we looked for greater gliders and we found greater gliders and then they just logged them, killed them, mm. um, when we find greater gliders or, you know, a hollow-bearing tree, we will save that one. So that's that's a great thing. That's so exciting. And that was Sue McKinnon speaking to Idwin Jeffries on Earth Matters last month about big forests and their um and their sorry, big forests and how their methods threaten species of gliders. And you can listen to Earth Matters on Sundays on 11am to 11.30 and now over to Grace. Thank you. Thank you, Sonera. Uh, before I go further, uh, please note this upcoming segment discusses stories of violence and murder against Indigenous women. If this isn't your cup of tea right now, you may wish to tune out for the next 15 minutes or choose to listen back to the podcast at the time of your choosing. So please uh, take care. So now I'll be speaking to Mununjali and South Sea Islander women, Chelsea Wadago, Professor of Indigenous Health and Executive Director of Karima Institute at Queensland University of Technology. Regarding the Senate inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women put out last year. Uh, good morning, Chelsea. Good morning, Grace. Good morning. So to start, uh, can we just first get to know about what has happened with this inquiry? How did it start, basically? Yeah, look, I haven't been involved um, directly in the inquiry itself. Um, I have been involved in providing an expert report with my colleagues around um, a coronal inquest into a murdered Aboriginal woman. Mm -hmm. um, and it's from that work... Uh, that we made a submission to the inquiry, um, which uh, was announced last year, um, mm. but for some strange reason has been met with uh, so much silence. Mm. I see. And oh, what what is usually meant to happen when an inquiry is is established? Well, I mean, you would think it would bring attention um, uh, uh, to an issue of significance. Um, you know, involving public consultation and exposure. And what we've found through this process is there is a, a, a lack of media attention to the inquiry itself. 
it is difficult to find out when public hearings are being held. Um, as someone who has made a submission to the inquiry, we have been chasing up, following up to see if there are hearings in here in the state of Queensland. Um, and it, it, it just lies in stark contrast to other um, inquiries, Senate inquiries. We've had a recent uh, Queensland government inquiry into police responses to uh, family violence, which you know, generated hundreds of media publications mm. about police misogyny and racism. Yet we find just 14 news reports relating to this uh, Senate inquiry um, and and very little attention. And I guess our argument is, is that this response um, to the, the current Senate inquiry lies at the heart of a problem of missing and murdered Indigenous women in that people don't care and there is a silence um, that surrounds violence against Indigenous women, mm. um, that creates this culture of impunity that subjects um, us to such high rates of violence in the first place. Mm, I see. And then um, with with the submission to the inquiry that uh, that was made, uh, what was this inquiry about? What, basically, yeah, what was it? So the Senate inquiry was set up to examine um, the issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women. And in yep. Canada, there has uh, been an inquiry undertaken that was far more substantial than what, what we're, what's happening here. Um, but the current Senate inquiry has borrowed some of the terms of reference from that Canadian inquiry, um, but has not engaged in the same methodology. And it's really been quite confusing. Um, and... And I, and I have to say, disappointing. Mm. Um, the the lack of response, the lack of interest, mirrors um, the response from coronal inquests into missing and murdered Aboriginal women. It mirrors the police response when loved ones report um, uh, Indigenous women missing. Um, there's just inaction. Um, mm. Yep, definitely. And um, so when this inquiry was submitted and then after that... Uh, this obviously highlights that missing and murdered indigenous indigenous women, girls, and giant diverse people. Um, uh, it, it is meant to say that they're actually never just simply missing. They did not just vanish from their homes, families, and country. They actually um, are violently disappeared. So, uh, what could you elaborate on? What what did you mean by that? What was the other? Yeah, I mean. I want to acknowledge the work of Amy McGuire, whose PhD research has, has, has looked at this specifically. Um, what our argument is, is that um, Indigenous women are not missing, they are murdered. Mm-hmm. And those that sit in the category of missing, <clears throat> we're finding a pattern um, where they uh, are deemed missing because there is a missing white perpetrator. So this nation is interested in violence against Indigenous women when there is the black male perpetrator. Um, And when there are um, white male perpetrators, uh, we note that the police are inactive um, and don't follow through. We note that the uh, media attention also um, mirrors the response of police. Um, And and this is the way in which Indigenous women bodies are politicised and brutalised in all kinds of sort of ways, um, that the violence that we are subject to, um, uh, the only interest in that is when it's um, at the hands of black men and not from strangers on the street or the hands of the state. Mm. And we're trying to break that silence. 
because these women just did not vanish into thin air. Yep. And then because of all this inaction that's happening, there's obviously there's been just really rarely any accountability for the violence against Indigenous women. Why 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 do you think they've been they're being framed this way? Why why is there this silence against this violence? Well, what we found in um, one of the investigations that we were commissioned to undertake, um, we found that the police attached um, uh, a sense of criminality to Indigenous uh, uh, female victims, even though it had nothing to do with the violence that they suffered. And so we're always being somehow complicit in the violence that we experience. Um, and um, even in the police reporting around um, uh, missing and murdered uh, women, we found no category on the police report for um, violence that happens uh, against women from strangers on the street. And in this place, um, Indigenous women in public spaces are subjected to all forms of violence but it seems there is an imbalance uh, around the attention here in that there's only an interest in that in the domestic sphere. Um, yet we know, and there have been numerous cases where Indigenous women have been subject to violence um, from those that they're not in a relationship with. And we need to, we need to um, do more in understanding that. And it traces itself back to the frontier days where Indigenous women were subject to all kinds of physical and sexual violence and there was never any accountability for that. Mm, yeah, definitely. And then, uh, yeah, because of all these things, of, the, of all this inaction, uh, Indigenous women continue to suffer from the violence and possibly un, un, um, unpublicised uh attention towards the things that are happening towards them. And we've seen, like, you know, some of the, the persons of interest mm. uh, lay claim to the fact that apparently Indigenous women just go walk about, we just disappear. And that's not mm. true. And we've got countless cases of Indigenous families pleading with the police to investigate their disappearance mm. um, and, and being met with um, silence and inaction. And so the police also need to be held accountable for not doing their job in protecting and investigating the violence that Indigenous women experience. And, you know, sadly, the police themselves are perpetrators of violence against Indigenous women at record rate. Mm, yeah. And then, and obviously, this this isn't just also about um, the attention that needs to be brought upon from the media, but also pe- uh, feminists and people who are advocating for women's rights there there's just just there's just not much being talked about from from them even though there's at least 315 aboriginal women that have been murdered yeah there's where, where's all those rallies and all the advocacy for this for all these I mean, ab- aboriginal women yeah i mean even just a few weeks ago seeing senator Lydia Thorpe being thrown to the ground by the police mm. um the lack of care yeah. for her um, you know, this is all on a spectrum, this indifference to the violence that Indigenous women experience. And, you know, um, <clears throat> that violence was so public, so visible. We all saw it from various angles. Yet there was very little care and concern for her as an Indigenous woman. 
Um, and this is the, the exact thing that we're speaking about and drawing attention to. Mm, definitely. And so, yeah, I, now that just all comes about breaking the, breaking the silence. And I think what, 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 is the, what is the best thing and do you want our listeners to know about for regarding, regarding this inquiry? And what, what do you want the media to know? Um, look, I think put the pressure on. Um, listen to the stories and amplify the stories because in amidst this silence, Indigenous women and their families have not been silenced. Um, have been turning up, uh, you know, insisting on coronal inquiries, fighting for coronal inquiries to get answers, have been screaming outside uh, coroner's courts, appealing for people to care, appealing for answers for their loved ones. Um, so we have a responsibility to listen to Indigenous women um, who, are, who are doing the work right now, who are testifying to the violence of this place. We need to put pressure on the Senate inquiry to do better um, and to invest more in, in hearing the stories of Indigenous women across the country. Um, and, I mean, we just need people to care, mm. to care about Indigenous women, that we belong to the category of human and that we are worth fighting for, we're worth caring for. Um, we know that we are, but right now this this nation is showing itself mm. in the most uh, disappointing of ways. Yeah, definitely. And so, sorry, um, uh, just healthy. Just one more question before we uh, unfortunately don't have much time left. Uh, so obviously, I, um, I actually couldn't really get a hold of Amy McQuire. Um So that's so. Um, but obviously, I'm also really honored just to be here talking uh, with you about uh, about this very important topic. So there was this uh, uh, her work on the the presents a uh, presenting that she mentioned yeah. about. So, uh, is it okay if you could actually just um, yeah elaborate a bit more on that? I can do my best. I'm on her supervisory team. Um, uh, Amy's work, um, you know, um, is just really, really powerful. And um, she's extended the, this method of presencing. Um, and it's about telling the full story of Indigenous women's lives, not just reducing them to the wounds that they suffered. And it's not an attempt to humanise, to appeal to whiteness. Um, but to honour their lives, even in death. And, um, and, and what's, what's amazing about Amy's work, she's critiqued her own previous reporting, um, revisited her own stories and, and telling them in a different kind of way. And it's led her um, not just to report on these stories and, and, and connect with families, but to sit in coronal inquests and bear witness and, and amplify their stories. Um, so it's definitely worth checking out Amy McGuire's uh, substack, um, where she's told said a number of these stories. And through this present thing, she's also, um, you know, theorised about what justice looks like in the absence of a perpetrator being held accountable. And the most powerful example of that is um, in the storytelling of Annie Queenie Hart, who was murdered uh, by a white man in Rockhampton. Um, and was never allowed to be brought home um, because during that time um, uh, she, she was refused. Um, and in the course of telling Annie Queenie's story, um, she uh, was, met, was able to crowdfund within 24 hours 
the money to, to bring her home to Sherbrooke um, so the family could, could lay her to rest. Um, and, you know, there was no one held accountable for her death, but she was returned home. And it's, you know, this is the power of presencing um, in life and in death and honouring Indigenous women in life and in death. Mm. Yep. All right. Thank, thank you so much, Chelsea. It's re- it just been really great speaking to you about this. And it, you're, it's just talking about such an important topic is is just really broaden our broaden our knowledge and what we need to know about this inquiry and that this definitely needs to be brought so much more on the media. Thank you so much for having me and, and drawing attention to this issue. Thank you, Chelsea. That was Munjali and South Sea Islander women, Chelsea Watergo, Professor of Indigenous Health and Executive Director of Karma Institute at Queensland University of Technology, about the silence on the Senate inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women put out last year. And I think this definitely needs to be put out more in the media. Claudia, yep. Oh, and yes, Grace, thank you for that interesting interview. Um, that was very um, sort of just um, scary to listen to. And now we'll go to a music break. Um, here's the song Something to Believe in by Moju. There is very little faith. That I have left in us Very little proof that I have seen That there is heaven up above Very little proof Of heaven above Despite our odds I just don't learn
and that was something to believe in by Moju. That was Something to Believe in by Moju. And if you've just tuned in, you're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. We've just heard a powerful conversation with Chelsea Watergo about the Senate inquiry into missing Aboriginal women and hearing about the lack of media interest and lack of interest generally um, in relation to this, which is, I think, a perfect segue into um, our next segment because we're going to be talking about an aspect of human experience that we often shy away from, which is vulnerability why it is important to accept our vulnerability and what is the best way to respond to vulnerability. Beth Matthews from 3CR's Radical Philosophy Program spoke to Marina McCoy, Professor of Philosophy at Boston College, Massachusetts, to find out about vulnerability. She starts by asking Marina to tell us a bit about herself. Yeah, so I've been teaching at Boston College for about 25 years. I got my doctorate at Boston University, and my specialty is really twofold. Most of my writing is on Plato, ancient Greek philosophy, themes like vulnerability, social and ethical issues. But I also teach in a service learning program in which my students are going out and serving underprivileged communities in the city of Boston thinking about questions of justice, including social justice and injustice. And that kind of teaching has really informed my interest in topics like vulnerability, because it's in the real world uh, where we encounter injustice, and we also start to notice this question of vulnerability and invulnerability. But what was it that inspired you to study vulnerability? I think it was two things at least. First of all, just being a person. I'm a human being and I've encountered my own life situations in which I'm vulnerable. But I noticed that a lot of Greek philosophy that I taught in my classes and that I've studied really focuses on the virtues. And of course the virtues are good. I'm I'm very interested in courage, wisdom, moderation, uh, generosity, these kinds of things that Aristotle and others talk about. But when Aristotle talks about people, he really either pre uh, presents people as wholly virtuous, like the high-minded man who is a man for Aristotle <laughs> with the deep booming voice and has all the virtues and is probably a great political leader, or you're someone you fall short. And I was interested in how is it that we are not always perfect, not always in possession of everything that we'd want to be as a person, and yet still worthy. In fact, isn't this actually part of like why we connect to each other as people? So I wanted to just uh, basically see if, especially in the Greek world, there was another side to human vulnerability. And it turns out that Greek tragedy, Greek poetry, and even Plato and Aristotle themselves do take up this topic. And then the other reason was this uh, service learning program. You know, I volunteered in a prison community for uh, oh gosh, maybe about 10 years now. And I certainly have encountered a lot of struggle with what it means to be human in the context where both men have suffered injustices, men and women suffer injustices in the prison system. And also they, uh, especially in the United States, <laughs> and they also have, uh, you know, come to terms with just their own personal vulnerability. Yeah, that's a good point. So would you have a definition of vulnerability? 
Yes, I think that vulnerability is the capacity to be wounded. So it's not, uh, it comes from the Latin word vulnus, uh, which means like to, to have a wound. It's like the Greek word trauma. So vulnerability isn't simply being hurt, right? Because we're not all going to be hurt throughout life in every way. Thank goodness I've never broken my leg and my arm, right? <laughs> but I could, right? My body is, is capable of having that experience. And likewise, psychological or social harms are not going to happen to us all equally, right? Um, people who are members of certain racialized class or people who are members of a certain community might have certain types of harms they experience disproportionately. But just the fact that we're human means we're going to experience some of those kinds of harms. And I wanted to draw attention to the fact that that's the human state is that we're capable of being hurt. So how is vulnerability central to the human experience? So I think there are at least three ways that we can be vulnerable. Um, certainly psychologically, we can be harmed by other people psychologically. We can be harmed by them uh, physically. And by physically, I don't simply mean things like injury or illness, although those are really important forms of vulnerability, but things like being uh, immigrants who are exiled from a safe political community, you know, not being able to immigrate to a new country where we can have citizenship. And that is a physical vulnerability that people experience, like not having a home. Uh, but also I'm interested in epistemological vulnerability, which is a vulnerability around knowledge. You know, we don't know everything. And that's something that's really important for politics today. You know, we don't give enough credibility to the fact that our views are limited. If you look at at least United States politics, but I imagine many other places in the world right now, <laughs> we see a lot of people who think they know everything or are quite sure that the other side is completely wrong, doesn't have anything worthwhile to say, um, who doubt expertise, who don't care about you know, these questions of what they don't know. And it's really important for us to have some humility to be able to listen to each other and to come to understand that we, we do need to learn more than our current state of knowledge. How might we better come to terms with our own vulnerability I think Socrates provides a fairly good model, which is he's always asking for us to test our own ideas. That's the first thing. We have to be willing to go through that very difficult process of having our own beliefs questioned, subjecting them to conversation, engaging in dialogue with people who are different than we are. You know, Socrates mostly talks to people who don't believe the same things he believes. And he tries to have those conversations to uh, test his own ideas, but also to test theirs. But I also think the other important thing about coming to terms with our own vulnerability is having a kind of, uh, and this would not maybe be a very Greek word or way of thinking about it, it's my way of thinking about it, a very compassionate stance towards ourselves and others to really understand that human beings are frail and that we need to um, kind of expect that in our relationships with one another and have a kind of care and tenderness for other people that arises from acknowledging that there's this shared vulnerability. Why is it important to accept our vulnerability? I think if we don't, we're gonna act in ways that are arrogant and hurtful. And ironically enough, we'll actually hurt people more. <laughs> Um, I also think it's important because it's true, you know, so for example, in questions of politics, we might ask ourselves, well, why should I be responsible for someone else's well-being? Why should I care for the person who's poor? Why should I care for the person who's homeless or an immigrant? But the reality is, is because 
the human state is to have need of other people. You know, the fact that every time I eat a meal, the food on my plate came from someone who picked that food, who processed it, who trucked it across the country, in our, at least in, our, in my case, who, um, you know, helped to sell it at the grocery store and so on. That demonstrates how interconnected we actually are for our most basic needs. And so it's a, a lie, a kind of illusion to think that we're not mutually dependent. And also, as uh, there's a great thinker, Eva Kate, who talks about dependency conditions, and she says, listen, most of us will encounter, will be dependent upon other people in our old age, and everyone's dependent upon someone else in our childhood. We just are. So this idea that's autonomous person who simply is self-sufficient and doesn't need anyone, it's just a, a very temporary and unusual state, in fact, and not a typical one. What is the best way to respond to our vulnerability? I think it's helpful, first of all, to acknowledge it. And then second of all, to make sure that in our relationships with other people, we build that into how we conduct political policies as well as our interpersonal relationships. So concretely, that means a lot of different things. But for example, I think it does mean having a strong social safety net for people um, at a political level. But also, it means that in our interpersonal, not just our formalized political government, you know, operations, but in our interpersonal relationships, we need to recognize the need to uh, care and be cared for. And that's very hard for people. In some ways, it's almost harder to be cared for, you know, than, than to offer care for a lot of people. But I think it is important that we have an ethics of mutual recognition of vulnerability. I also think that it means that we have to be, um, to the extent that we can be, and not, I'm not saying we have to force some people, but to try to be forgiving and reconciling in contexts where there's been prior damage, you know, it's, it's important for us to try to aim at least for genuine, just, you know, fair, but uh, rec reconciliation ba based on real justice. Yeah, that, that's a point. I mean, it is, it is quite difficult to realize that we are all vulnerable and we might be vulnerable in different ways. I mean, we might be physically able to do things, but psychologically, we always have that need for other people. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. And, you know, again, I think we have to also recognize that the kinds of vulnerabilities people experience have to be treated differentially. So, I don't want to assume that just because I've experienced sexism, that, that therefore I know exactly what it's like for a Black woman in the United States uh, this year to experience racism, right? Uh, I need to also really listen to other people about what it means for them to experience vulnerability in their own situated context. And that means really, you know, being open to hearing things that maybe I didn't know before about myself or my world or the world of other people. That's a, that's a really good point. And I mean, sometimes, sometimes people cope with discrimination better than, better than other people. And I think maybe it's about having a support network as well. I think that's right. And that's part of what, so I have a book called Wounded Heroes, Vulnerability as a Virtue in Ancient Greek Literature and Philosophy. And one of the things I argue in there is that it's actually vulnerability that creates the ties in our political communities 
Um, it, it's where we, it's where we, you know, come together. It's not really through our strengths, but through our weaknesses that we tend to really come together as communities. And it is important for us to have communities, not only the wider political community, but networks of friendship and family. In fact, there was just recently, I think a New York Times series talking about how happiness is so deeply connected to people having a good network of friends and support. And that seems to be borne out by empirical science that we need other people uh, to be happy, but we need to have the right kinds of communities. And not, but not stay isolated either. It's such a balance, I think, to have on the one hand, people who are supportive of us, who are like us, who can understand, for example, if we have a certain kind of discrimination we've experienced or we have common interests, but then we also must find ways to cross lines to talk to people who are different than we are, lest we universalize our experience and think, oh, okay, I know what it's like <laughs> to be a person when in fact we know what it's like to be a particular person in the world, but not everything. And that was Professor Marina McCoy from Boston College, Massachusetts, speaking with 3CR's radical philosophy presenter, Beth Matthews, about the human experience of vulnerability. Lots of points to think about there. And uh, this was an edited segment from a conversation which first aired on the 4th of February. And if you want to listen to the rest of uh, that uh, chat, you can head to the Radical Philosophy homepage on the 3CR website. To catch more stories like this, tune into Radical Philosophy, which airs every Saturday at 1pm. We're going to go to a song now, a Johnny Cash cover for our country and Western fans in the audience. Will the Circle Be Unbroken by the Neville Brothers? And when we come back, we'll be talking about autism with the author of Growing Into Autism, Professor Sandra Tom-Jones.
3CR is a community radio licence holder. What you hear on community radio is governed by the community radio codes of practice. The codes of practice cover matters relating to program content, including local content, news, current affairs, Australian music content, programs for children, and the responsibilities associated with broadcasting by and for the community. They also cover aspects such as community access and participation in how 3CR operates. Copies of the codes are available from our website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash who we are. You're listening to 855 AM. And you're back with Wednesday Breakfast. Before the break, we heard Will the Circle Be Unbroken by the Neville Brothers. Well, April is Autism Awareness Month, and across the next few weeks, we'll be speaking to autistic people about their lived experiences in work, education and life. We begin the series today with our first guest, Professor Sandra Tom-Jones, author of the book Growing Into Autism. Professor Tom Jones is the Pro Vice-Chancellor Research Impact at Australian Catholic University. She also leads the Autism Research Program at ACU and is a passionate advocate for the full inclusion of autistic people in education, employment and all aspects of society. We welcome her now to talk about her work and what inclusivity and acceptance means for her. Good morning, Sandra. Good morning, Claudia. Thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here. When did your understanding of what it means to be autistic begin? 
Uh, I think like a lot of autistic women, because I was diagnosed late, uh, my understanding of autism actually came initially from my children. So both of my children are autistic and they were actually diagnosed a long time before I was. And so my understanding of autism initially very much came from, from them, from watching them grow and develop and um, experience challenges, but also demonstrate a great many strengths um, and learning about autism through their diagnosis and their journey, uh, which is why I think for a long time, like many people, I thought of autism very much as in the context of boys because I had two boys um, and that's very much the autistic stereotype, isn't it? That's what, that's what we sort of see in the media. Exactly. Um, so you grew up in the 1970s in Perth and I was thinking um, about, you know, 50 years ago, what did people know about autism then? And what was it like for you um, in terms of the way you understood yourself and the behaviours of others? People knew very little about autism um, back in the 70s. I think people, uh, <coughs> probably people still know very little about autism, but uh, back then it really wasn't something that people thought of as an explanation for differences. Uh, I mean, we still have those issues around, you know, that male stereotype that I mentioned and, and girls being under-recognised. But when I was growing up, public awareness of autism was very low, but also sort of clinical awareness. It really wasn't considered as a reason for the, the sorts of challenges and struggles that I had. So growing up, that wasn't considered as being a possibility. All I knew was that I was different to the other kids um, and that different wasn't very good and that I didn't really fit in. So I just grew up feeling like there's something wrong with me. I'm just, I'm different and not in a good way. So I just need to um, work harder, try harder to, to fit in and to be more like those other people. Uh, so I really grew up sort of feeling like there's something fundamentally wrong with me because I don't, I don't understand the world the way that other people do and I, I find things difficult that they all find easy. Um, and my family, um, from the very, very best of intentions, tried very hard to make me as much like other people as possible. So would point out to me things that I did that were different. So, you know, don't 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 act like that, don't make that sound, don't move like that, because that's, you know, not 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 normal. And it was very much done um, and not just my family, you know, teachers, other people around me who cared, people who cared were genuinely trying to um, correct my behaviours so that I was like everyone else, which really added to that feeling that there is something fundamentally wrong with me because I'm different. And this, this goes to the core of the way we um, understand and see autism, that medical model versus the social model, which you prefer to adopt. Would you like to expand on that yes I, think, I I agree with you that that's been for a very long time was the the, the model you know autism is, is a, it's an illness it's a it's something that we need to fix something that we need to cure uh, and and a model that was very much around how do we change these people so that they fit in with everyone else so that they're like everyone else uh, whereas the social model is really about saying autism isn't a disease it's a difference it's a different way of being in the world and actually what the problem is 
is that the world isn't made for autistic people. So how can we make adjustments in the world to actually make it more functional for autistic people? And if you if you change it around like that, then it's really about saying there's actually nothing wrong with these people. They're, they're just different. Um, in the same way that, you know, we accept that some people are tall and some people are short. And so we don't build all of our houses with doors the right height for the short people to come in and say to the tall people, gee, there's something wrong with you because you don't fit. Uh, you know, we, we accept that people have natural differences and that we need to allow for them. And we, we, we make clothes for tall people and clothes for short people and furniture for tall people and furniture for short people. And the social model accepts that, that, you know, what we need to do is actually create a world that is more accepting of autistic differences of all differences and and makes it possible for autistic people to live in the world and be themselves and succeed and be successful and be happy without having to change fundamentally who they are that we're actually disabled by the environment not by ourselves so it's like a structural flaw in society as opposed to um, individual responsibility for change absolutely because seeing autism purely as you know, a medical problem to be solved completely ignores the fact that autistic people actually have many strengths. You know, it, it's not it's not that we are just this problem that needs to be fixed. We are a different way of being in the world, a different way of thinking. But yes, it comes with challenges, but it also comes with, with strengths. You know, autistic people bring so much to the world that can be of value if they're actually recognised and supported to use those strengths. And you've talked about the way your intense um, interest in your research area has brought out the best in you, but also um, in the, the work that you produce as an example of that. Absolutely. I mean, I, I am a good researcher because I am autistic, not in spite of the fact that I'm autistic. I, I, I have an ability to really focus and to gather information and to retain that information and to sort it and catalogue it and to make sense of it and there are you know my ability to to spot errors and to make sure that the, that the work that I'm doing is correct and accurate and to draw links between something that I read five years ago that connects to this other thing that that's part of the way that my autistic brain works and so many autistic people have strengths. I mean, you look at some of the great autistic writers and creators and so many different fields, uh, and it's actually the way that our brains work that make us good at what we do. And if you see that, then the medical model doesn't make sense because if you fixed that, then Chloe Hayden wouldn't be a great actress. And Hannah Gadsby wouldn't be a great comedian. And, you know, Eric Garcia wouldn't be a great journalist. <laughs> like, that's not something you want to fix. Exactly. Now, you've worked in a lot of uh, different workplaces over the years and in different uh, fields. Um, can you tell us about the way you perceived yourself and the way you... Uh, perhaps were worried about how others might perceive you. How long did it take before you felt comfortable identifying as autistic in the workplace? And what were the barriers that prevented you from feeling it was okay to share that sooner? 
it's a really difficult decision for anyone to disclose in the workplace. You know, it's a question that I get asked a lot, you know, particularly from, from younger people who are starting their careers, you know, should I disclose? Uh, and and I, I always think I'd love to be able to say to people, yes, of course you should, because if you disclose your diagnosis, then people will support you and and help you and recognise the things that you need in order to achieve your best success in the workplace. But unfortunately, there are there are barriers. And the thing that made me cautious for a long time was that very real risk of, of stigma, of people making assumptions that um, I would not be able to do things because I'm autistic or that any challenges that I had would outweigh any strengths that I had. And my decision to disclose was, well, it was very much driven by my my oldest son who sort of said to me, Mum, you're now in a very senior position and if you can't disclose now then what does that say to the rest of us who are starting our careers? Uh, and I thought, well, that's a very, <laughs> that's a very, very good point. And if I, if I now say I'm autistic, people can't say, well, you can't achieve career success because you're autistic because it's too late to tell me that because I've already done it. Um, but I was still nervous about disclosing. Uh, and then, of course, I disclosed in a ridiculously public way by getting really annoyed at something somebody said on a plane and then writing something that got published in the Sydney Morning Herald, which then meant that my, my disclosure was a little bit more public than probably I'd originally planned. Um, but my decision to disclose was very much around, OK, I, I, I really want to be able to support other people in the workplace. But I was very nervous because I thought people are going to make assumptions about my capability, my capacity, and there were lots of good things that came out of my disclosure. I was able to um, request adjustments and to be very clear about some of the things I needed to make my work life easier, and I was also able to use that as a platform to lobby for adjustments for other people, other autistic people in the workplace, but I have also experienced... Not very many, but a few instances where people have made assumptions that there would be things that I couldn't do or shouldn't do because I'm autistic, even at my career stage. Can you give us um, an indication of what sort of uh, misconceptions people had? Um, Primarily around things like people skills. That um, I, I was in a situation of conflict with um, another staff member uh, and the assumption was made that it was probably because of my communication skills as an autistic person, that that was probably the underlying problem and that probably the solution was for me to have training in clear communication. And I just found that really interesting because I'd been in the leadership position for over 20 years and had very good reports from all of my staff and there'd never been any question about my communication skills. You know, I'm a public speaker. I'm a, there was, until there was this public disclosure of the fact that I was autistic and then 
if there's a, an interpersonal problem in my work environment, it's probably because I'm autistic. It becomes the easy fallback explanation for why there might be an issue. Um, and I just found that that interesting. How did you deal um, with that? Oh, probably not very well. <laughs> you know, I, I have to. Be, I'm, I don't have all the solutions. I wish I did. I was. I was quite shocked. I. I was. I was upset, um, and I probably didn't deal with it very well. I mean, I was fortunate that other people around me and other senior people recognised that that wasn't the situation, and that I do have a very solid track record of dealing very, very well with people. So the situation did get resolved, but. Um, I, I, I suppose in a way it was probably a good thing for me in terms of from an advocacy point of view because it really did make me realise that disclosure does come with risks. I mean, I, I knew that, but for me to realise that even at the point of being where I'm at, that I had demonstrated that I had the capacity to do the job that I was doing, but even at, at that level, people could still say ah, this, here's a problem which we would never have attributed to you before but now we'll attribute it to you because we know you're autistic. Um, so for me, it was a, it was a bit of an eye-opener and probably a, a good lesson that I've taken on board when people say to me, should I disclose and how should I disclose? Mm. And what are the positive actions employers and colleagues have made that have worked for you? Oh, so many, and that's why, you know, I, I don't want to suggest that people shouldn't disclose. I, I think for me, you know, it, other than, you know, a couple of little tiny examples like that one, it's been an overwhelmingly positive experience. And I guess the first thing for me is I thought I'd disclose and everyone would be shocked because I thought I'd hidden it so well. Um, and I guess the biggest surprise for me was that nobody was surprised. Everyone sort of said, oh, yes, <laughs> knew that. Um, which, um, which was actually pretty good, but not not kind of what I've expected. Um, but so many things, you know, being able to make physical adjustments to my workplace, um, to be able to say to my boss, look, um, you know, I can't work under these fluorescent lights. They're too bright. Can I have them changed? Can I have a dimmer switch? Um, you know, those sorts of adjustments. Can I have the air conditioning vents closed off because that cold air blowing on me really, really distracts me? To be able to say to people, you know, when I when I go to meetings in other people's rooms, I now happily wear my cap or my sunglasses if they've got bright lights in their room and nobody bats an eyelid, nobody makes me feel uncomfortable. Um, it's just accepted as that's just what Sandra needs to do to feel comfortable. Uh, I can say to people, uh, you know, if we're, if we're having a Zoom meeting, sorry, I need my camera off. Um, so I can concentrate and people accept that, you know, that we've done, you know, a little bit of autism awareness training. So they understand that if I turn my camera off, it's because it's much easier for me to concentrate on the conversation. If I don't have to look at all their staring eyes looking at me, um, it's not because I'm, you know, doing a crossword puzzle. Uh, so, so those sorts of things, um, just to know that I can be me, you know, I can... I can sit in a meeting and I can have a fidget toy so that I can actually focus and concentrate and people accept that. Um, to be able to say, yes, I can go to that meeting or that event, but if I do that, I can't go to that other thing because that's just too much people stuff in one day. Um, to be able to say, look, 
I'm going to be much more functional if I can work a couple of days from home. Um, so there's been lots of things where I've been able to ask for adjustments. And I probably could have asked for those adjustments before. But being able to put a name to it that people can understand or at least Google does make it easier. To say, you know, I don't want to go to that many meetings because it just makes me tired and exhausted and anxious to talk to people is hard for people to understand. To say, I can't do four meetings in a row because I'm autistic, people are much more likely to be able to actually understand that. To mm. be able to say, I can't have those bright lights because I'm autistic and part of my autism is that I'm hypersensitive to light. Those, It, it just it gives you a context to be able to explain to people why you need things changed in your environment. Um, so I, I've found, for me, overwhelmingly, it's been a really positive experience in, in being able to ask for those changes to the environment, but also to be able to be a lot more comfortable being me to make the adjustments I need to make to be able to behave a bit more like me, um, to wear my sunglasses, wear my hat, fidget if I need to, turn the camera off, um, just be a little bit more me and a little bit less masked has been really, really helpful to my wellbeing. Thank you so much for sharing your experience with us. Um, I'm sure many listeners, um, both non-autistic and autistic uh, listeners, will be um, really interested in, in hearing what you've uh, shared with us this morning. Um, so thank you. Thank you for having me on the show and thank you for doing what you're doing to raise autism awareness and acceptance. Thank you. That was Professor Sandra Tom-Jones, Pro-Vice-Chancellor of Research Impact at Australian Catholic University. Sandra's book, Growing Into Autism, is published by Melbourne University Press. To learn more about autism, head to the AMAZE website, www.amaze.org.au, and the National Autism Helpline is there for anyone who wants to seek further um, information or support 1300 308 699. And we're going to wrap up the show now, but just a reminder that we will be speaking about autism uh, over the next few weeks. So tune in at 10 past eight uh, next week. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening today and see you all next week. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.